You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about the history of science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on June 1st, 2022. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Q&A about history of science and technology. I'm happy to try and answer whatever I can about that topic. And I see there are all kinds of questions saved up here and that have come in on the submission form that we have. There's a question from Jack here. Uh, do you think we'll ever get to the stage of having flying cars? Is there any historical evidence? That's a fun question. You know, I remember seeing issues of Popular Mechanics magazine from 50 years ago, maybe, that are about flying cars. And I think, you know, back from, no, it must be more than 50 years ago. It must be the 1950s, actually. Uh, I'm losing track of time, 70 years ago. Um, I think as soon as people had cars, which they've had since basically the beginning of the you know, beginning of the 1900s-ish, and airplanes, which came in at more or less the same time. I mean, you know, bicycles, airplanes, cars, surprisingly a small period of time that those appeared uh, in the late 1800s to beginning of 1900s. And, uh, you know, when people sort of say the Wright brothers were, you know, bicycle mechanics, oh, you know, it was just a bicycle mechanic that made the airplane. It's like, well, bicycle mechanics were the leading edge, so to speak. And it, it sort of reminds me of the, of the thing where people say, oh, Albert Einstein was, you know, just a patent clerk at the patent office in Bern in Switzerland. You know, he'd kind of, uh, he'd, he'd fallen off the track, so to speak. Well, actually, you know, the patent office in Bern was kind of the Silicon Valley of its time. It was the place where kind of the leading edge of things in technology in particular were going on. In that particular case, it was uh, uh, refrigerators. And I think Einstein even had a patent or two on refrigerators himself. Um, but that was, uh, that was kind of the, the high-tech leading edge of its time, the kind of the, I don't know what it is, the, 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 what was machine learning a few years ago is now probably a blockchain of its time, so to speak was refrigerators and the Bern patent office was the thing. So in any case, I think that this concept of flying cars is probably dates, I bet there are things from the 1920s talking about flying cars, because once you have planes and you have cars, you think about uh, you know, making uh, sort of the, the personal plane kind of thing. You know, another thing that is notable, uh, so, so why aren't there flying cars now? And what else can one say about that? Another thing that's notable, if you look at small planes, like I don't know, Cessna airplanes, I don't think the designs have changed since the 1950s, probably. Um, you know, there's new avionics and things like that, but it's a basic, you know, it's the plane with its wings high up and it's, you know, it, the same structure. And I mean, maybe there have been tweak updates, but I think the main sort of thing about a... Uh, you know, a single propeller, small plane really hasn't changed in a long time. Um, and I think that's a, um, so, you know, why didn't that turn into the flying car? Um, I think there's a related question, which is why did helicopters not become more popular? I mean, it was the case that in, I remember, oh, when was this? Back in the 70s and early 80s, 
there were some companies, I remember Digital Equipment Corporation, for example, which had a bunch of uh, little offices dotted around the New England area. Um, they were very big on helicoptering people from one place to another, but that was a very rare case. Um, but somehow helicopters didn't catch on in the way that people thought in the 1950s, for example, that they might. Uh, my impression is the, the couple of reasons for that. One is they're kind of hard to fly, and another is they're kind of hard to maintain. And the, the, the sort of they're finicky creatures, and so it just wasn't something that could easily be consumerized, so to speak. And the hard to fly part is also important because by the time you're spending, you know, uh, you know, there's a, uh, you might argue, and it's an interesting question, you know, for cars, for example, uh, cars were presumably sort of one eased into them being not totally easy to drive. I mean, they've gotten easier to drive as automatic transmission, you know, automatic gear changes and so on came in. But I suppose that the early cars probably, you know, before there were driving licenses and all those kinds of things, the early cars, they weren't going terribly fast. And the kind of the mechanism for, oh, you steer it, and it's kind of like, you know, nobody expected, people expected a small amount of difficulty in learning to use them, like riding a bicycle, but not a huge amount of difficulty. Planes are a different story, and helicopters are yet another level of, of story. Um, and I think that's, you know, you, you don't expect uh, to, uh, you know, it's such a, such a difficult thing because, because one would think, I mean, the truth is, if you, you know, I learned to fly little planes many, many years ago, I haven't done it for a very long time, but, you know, fundamentally, if the plane is flying and somebody just hands you the controls, you know, nothing terrible is going to happen in the next few minutes, probably, unless you do something really silly. But if you are trying to land the plane, for example, that takes some level of skill that probably exceeds the level of skill. You know, the question is, is it harder to learn to parallel park or to learn to land a plane? And I think it's definitively harder to learn to land a plane than to learn to parallel park. So, you know, that that is probably a reason why that wasn't a thing. Now, uh, on the helicopter story, you might ask, you know, the ubiquity of drones in the last, I don't know, what is it, five, six, seven years or something? When did drones, let's see, must have been 10 years ago or something that the first consumer drones um, started to come in when they were still being called quadricopters or quadcopters and so on. And the, the thing that had limited that, there were two things. One was battery technology. Could you actually, you know, power the motors and have the thing lift itself up and fly for a reasonable time. That was thing number one. And thing number two was, could you have the flight controller um, that is doing the, the feedback control loop to keep the thing you know, flying level and so on? Could you, could you operate that? Could, could the computers that were needed to run the flight controller in real time and so on be able to be powered from the batteries, be able to be small, small enough, et cetera? And I think those things converged maybe 10-ish years ago. People had imagined the idea of quadcopters back, oh, in the 1950s for sure, but it was super difficult. Like a human trying to fly the thing, it just doesn't work. You just can't control it quickly enough and so on, and the thing goes unstable. And I, my impression is that's the, you know, helicopters are just are controllable by people, but it's difficult. Quadcopters were not controllable by people. 
And it took sort of electronic automatic control to be able to do that. And that's something where sort of the things of computers and batteries and so on converged roughly 10 years ago. And so now the question is, well, what about a flying car? Um, I think that's a partly a question of battery technology, partly a question of uh, other kinds of things. I mean, I've seen, well, let's see, I've seen several demos or pseudo demos of flying cars. Um, I remember one at Consumer Electronics Show maybe five years ago or something now, one at an event that I was at um, just recently, where I have to admit in neither case did I actually see the thing take off. Um, it was claimed to take off, but it didn't actually do it. Um, so I can't say, oh, and actually, now that I think about it, there's a, another example, even uh, near, uh, which, I, which I saw kind of privately, so to speak, um, of something where they're sort of samples, but they're not quite the right scale. They're not quite, I think, the technology curves for batteries and other things haven't quite reached the point where you can do it. And then I think about it, I've also seen a bunch of business plans for these things. Um, the, you know, my impression is flying cars are coming. Now, you know, the other point is, how do you believe in sort of the automatic pilot for the flying car? Because you're not going to have the, I think it is unlikely that the typical consumer is going to seriously learn to fly. Now, maybe that's not correct. Maybe, uh, maybe that with enough kind of intermediate uh, automated control that your average consumer could perfectly well learn to fly and that the parts that are difficult and sensitive about landing and things like that, that that could be automated and that the human is just giving the overall instructions. I mean, it, you know, you could say that when you drive a car, like for somebody like me that learned to drive a stick shift car um, because that was sort of all there was, in, in the uh, you know sort of mid 1970s in England or something um, that was that that's oh that's kind of difficult and uh, uh, you know you have to learn that extra set of things nowadays uh, people in a country like the US at least where where automatic transmission cars are ubiquitous people just don't learn that stuff you know how do you start a a uh, a stick shift car on a hill well it's kind of tricky because you know you you press the clutch. The thing this you know disconnects its its um its drive system or whatever, and unless you have your foot on the uh, on the gas to push it forward a bit or on the on the um, on the brake and so on, you know the thing will start rolling backwards. Gosh, I've even I'm, I might have almost forgotten how to do this. I think well, you, yeah, you 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 have to balance it so that you put the thing in gear and you're pressing the gas enough to keep the thing from rolling backwards. And and I'm you know. I learned to do that some ridiculous number of years ago, and uh, every so often I have to do it again. But you know, that's I, I would say that that's again pretty easy compared to landing a plane uh, for you know current kinds of planes. But by the time you've automated some pieces of landing the plane, maybe it becomes comparable, and maybe it's something that consumers can do so long as they trust the automation chain that's doing the landing. But I think most of the business plans I've seen involve well, a couple of different kinds. One is there is a taxi driver, so to speak, who's, who's uh, flying the air taxi for you. Or the other is just get in the thing and it will take you where you're supposed to go. And that, that's the same thing. You know, you see these demos. I saw one very recently, actually, the demos of self-driving taxis where basically it's, you know, you get in it 
and um, it, there's no person driving it and it just takes you where you're supposed to go. Um, the, uh, um, it's, um, I think, uh, uh, so, I mean, I, my impression is that flying cars finally, after probably nearly a hundred years of gestation, might be about to arrive. Now, it's an interesting question, what effect that will have. For example, you know, the ubiquity of cars is what drove the development of suburbs in, in uh, you know, post-World War II period. And people have been saying for, for years, oh, there are going to be exurbs and everybody's going to live in view of a, you know, right now near a mountain, even though that's far away from the big cities and so on. And, uh, you know, perhaps the advent of ubiquitous flying cars will mean that there's, you know, there's again a, a shift in population um, in, uh, in the way that there was with cars and, and suburbs and so on. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, th I think, I mean, I might be wrong, but I think, I think one is finally at this point. I mean, it's always interesting, these technology curves of things like, you know, fax machines, for example. They were 100 years in gestation. People had telegraphs. I think even Gauss had a telegraph that was hooked up to some kind of plotter type thing that could act like a fax machine. And that was, uh, you know, solidly uh, sometime in the, what, 1870s, maybe? I don't know. Um, and it took until, you know, fax machines actually came really on the scene in, what, the late 1970s? They've gone away now. Um, but that was a consequence of, of electronics and, uh, you know, what did it take to be able to do the compression and decompress it and so on? And it was sort of an electronics curve, I guess, maybe together with a phone line quality curve. I'm not sure. But, you know, another one that's, that's really a classic of this kind is virtual reality, where, you know, I saw the first demos of that in, when was it? In the late 80s. Uh, and, you know, it's starting to finally really be here now. But it's still been a thing where people have sort of said, is it coming? Is it coming? You know, I know in our company, we've done a bunch of things with VR. And uh, uh, I was trying to push about three or four years ago, I was trying to push again for us to do things with VR. And some of the people who've been at the company a long time said, that's just what you said in the early 1990s, trying to persuade us to do VR work then. We did some then, and look what a bust that was. So, you know, it's, it's funny how these things, you know, eventually all the pieces converge. Uh, same with electric cars is another example where, you know, that's a battery technology thing, at least that's my impression. Um, and, uh, you know, things gradually converge to the point where something becomes possible. That's one of the ways that sort of technology arrives is there's been a, a prodrome of the technology perhaps for, for many decades. And then finally things get to the point where, where it actually makes sense. I mean, I, I do think that the uh, uh, this question of, I mean, the economics of, of self-driving, of, of, of flying cars is, is a, you know, there, there are all kinds of issues. I mean, to, to mention transportation kinds of issues, like, for example, when Dean Kamen developed the Segway, you know, which was, I guess, something that was a sort of a spin-off of wheelchair technology that his company had developed for, for various other other kinds of, uh, of companies and so on. But, you know, people were originally, oh, segways are gonna take over the world, so to speak, and everybody's going to be, you know, tooling around on one of these, um, I don't know what the generic term for that is, a, a, um, 
a, I don't know, a self-propulsion platform or something. I don't know what the right, right term is for, for a generic for, for those things. But, you know, why didn't that take off? I'm not sure. Maybe they were a bit expensive. Maybe they were a bit big. Um, maybe the use cases weren't there. I'm not sure. Maybe people uh, maybe wanted to walk. I, I don't know. I think there are plenty of cases where people would think, oh, that was a worthwhile thing to, to be able to go a bit faster or a bit less effort and so on. Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was maybe it was details, or maybe it was that there was some fundamental technology thing that wasn't at the right price at that time. And maybe in another five or ten years, something, some successor of that will will become super popular. Um, I mean, I think the um, uh, gosh, what was it called? The um, I got one of these. The the uh, oh, I'm thinking it's called. F Nine five nine. I forget what it is. It's a it's a thing that you stand on. That's kind of like a a segue, but it doesn't have a thing that you have to hold. It's a it's a um, just um, oh I don't know what it's called. Uh, uh, there was a, a a kind of a craze for these things for a while. Um, let's see. A comment from Dudan here. Even now with traction control, anti-lock braking systems, automatic crash avoidance, and the like. Driving cars as automated smart safeguards nowadays. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think the basics of driving cars. Well, things like anti-lock brakes. You know, people were still driving cars around even when they were skidding on ice without anti-lock braking um, because the basics were fairly easy. If you're flying a plane and you just can't land, you know, then even the basics aren't aren't okay. You could probably drive a car perfectly well without being able to perfectly parallel park and so on. Um, let's see. There's a question from Frost here. Seems like many science discoveries or inventions happen due to some mistake or error that ultimately makes the insight or experiment work. How prevalent is that? I don't think it's as prevalent as one thinks. Because I think that most discoveries, you have to be primed to make that discovery. It is a very unusual person and situation and very rare in history, much rarer than the history books would make you believe that somebody notices something awry, notices something they didn't expect and says, uh, really, they really, really didn't expect that it was nowhere near what they expected. And they say, aha, now I've got this whole giant theory. That's really rare. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, I can tell even stories from my own past where things that I've discovered, I was not quite primed for them. And so it took ages to really realize that that was a thing. Actually, I mean, I, I think maybe I told the story fairly recently because I sort of just figured out this particular piece of personal history, kind of embarrassing because it's uh, something of my own from 40 years ago. I was starting to look at cellular automata, these simple programs that... Um, you just run on this line of black and white cells and, and you see, in many cases, very complicated behavior. Well, I had come into that project knowing lots of stuff about mathematical physics. And I had assumed that these little tiny programs I was studying, that all this very heavy machinery from mathematical physics, I'd just be able to mow these things down and uh, figure out how they worked. Didn't work that way. I got a bunch of other people, mathematicians, particularly some physicists as well, interested in these things. They too 
tried to figure out, can you figure stuff out about these things? They too failed to figure stuff out using methods of mathematical physics. But the thing that I realized was that the very fact that it was hard to figure things out was itself highly interesting. And it led to this idea of computational irreducibility, led to this whole new kind of science, eventually led to our physics project. It's had a giant chain of things spanning 40 years now that have emerged from this, this thing that you might call it an accidental discovery, but it really wasn't, and it took a while. Now, now I, as, I, as I mentioned this even to, to you guys, I realized there's another absolutely critical piece of the story, which I'm sort of not joining the dots for properly, um, which is the following, that when I was starting to study cellular automata and these kinds of things, there were two big sort of tool sets that I had. One was from mathematical physics, and the other was from computational language design, because I had built in 1979 to 1981, I built a thing called SMP, which was kind of a forerunner of mathematical morphism language. And it was a very kind of principled uh, kind of fundamentals of computation, fundamentals of mathematical logic, uh, symbolic computation system. And so I had that experience. And I also knew that in, you know, I, I knew about universal computation. I knew that pretty viscerally, so to speak, by that time, that you could have sort of rules for computation that would sort of give you this sort of universal ability to, to compute whatever you want to compute. So as I think about it, actually, as I'm, as I'm sitting here right now, I'm realizing that I, even recently I hadn't joined the dots properly on this history because the fact that I ended up sort of pivoting and realizing the fact that mathematical physics wasn't working means you should look elsewhere. Where should you look? Well, you should look at something computational, which by the way, I happen to have just spent multiple years studying and, and understanding rather deeply. So the fact that, so you might say, was that an accidental discovery? Uh, you know, it was accidental, you know, for example, rule 30, the fact that I discovered rule 30 when I did and paid attention to it when I did, that was sort of accidental. It had to do with the fact that I was testing out some laser printer and decided I should run this particular thing. And I didn't really, didn't really take it that seriously at that point. And I get this picture and it's like, I really should take this seriously. And you could say that was kind of an accidental thing, but it was accidental after it had been primed by you know, four or five years of, of thinking about related kinds of things. And I think that's, that's really, you know, we are just not very good at taking in something that we completely don't expect for which we have no conceptual framework and saying, aha, this is what this all means. Um, you know, I think, you can go back and look at uh, you know, many kinds of discoveries and inventions and so on. And there was some, uh, you know, you can, you can always see some kind of framework. Now, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know all of these histories. I mean, something like buckyballs, carbon 60, you know, uh, uh, things. Uh, the fact that those weren't discovered gazillions of years earlier than they were, again, was a kind of people just weren't looking for them. It wasn't that, and by the time they were discovered, they were discovered because people have been trying to construct, you know, very elaborate caged carbon molecules and things like this. And then it's like, well, let's go look for carbon 60. And then it's, oh, they've got these experiments, like look from here. We've got methodology for testing out these things that we were trying to construct. Had somebody found that back in the day, 
so to speak, that they, they did some tests and they, you know, maybe that could have happened, but I think that's really the exception, not the rule. I think, you know, there are, there are endless examples where people without a conceptual framework, they just didn't look for, they didn't think about things in the right way, they didn't look for the right things. So I kind of think this, this accidental discovery thing, it's a great storybook kind of story. I think it's usually not true. And my own observation from studying kind of historical biography of scientists and so on is even when the storybooks basically say, and then somebody had this brilliant idea and did this, uh, it really didn't happen that way. There was usually a decade of kind of conceptual development, which, yes, didn't actually get that particular one, you know, special thing that they had to notice. Um, but it was kind of building a conceptual framework that primed a person for, to be able to, to pay attention to that thing that was, un, that was at least locally unexpected. I mean, they're just, they're huge numbers of examples of things that were missed because people didn't have the frameworks um, to, to study them. Things that I've had the, had the pleasure of discovering, so to speak, that, that people could have discovered decades, even centuries earlier, if they'd had the right conceptual framework in thinking about what was going on. I mean, a very typical example is this whole phenomenon of computational irreducibility. There are many examples where, for example, simple rules produce complicated behavior and so on. You see that in the, in the sequence of prime numbers, for example. But people weren't looking at that. There was endless work done by Gauss and Riemann and all these kinds of people on what regularities can you tease out of this seeming randomness of the distribution of primes. But their question was, what regularities can you tease out? Not, let's try and understand what the sort of fundamental conceptual philosophical foundation for that apparent randomness is. So let's see. Uh, okay, there's a question here from Dennis about the history of automated theorem proving. Um, and then do I think that we're on the cusp of an era when computers were proving theorems and mathematicians would interpret them. Um, the second answer is easier than the first. Well, okay, let, let me say the following thing. There's been a, a history of automated theorem proving dates back to the 1950s. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about what I know about that history. Um, there's been a sort of, well, what is automated theorem proving? Automated theorem proving is you're given a collection of axioms, you know, p dot q equals q dot p, p dot q dot r equals blah, blah, blah. And then you're asked, given a theorem about p's and q's and dots and so on, prove that theorem. And so you're going to prove that theorem by showing that just by making sort of substitutions based on the axioms, you can eventually derive the theorem that you're asking for. And there were sort of subcases of that that were studied um, in, I'm trying to remember here, in the 1950s, uh, sort of a subcase that was, was quite popular was uh, to do with uh, theorems in Boolean algebra, theorems in logic, and particularly questions like satisfiability um, and, uh, um, yeah, and, and, and finding for example, given a logic expression, P and Q or R and not P and so on, find values of P, Q and R that make that expression true. It was in 1971, 
it was proved that that was sort of a quintessential MP complete problem. So in principle, we believe probably that ultimately you can do no better than sort of filling in uh, the, uh, the exponentially many possible values to check whether any of them work. But in practice, you can do a lot better. And um, there was an algorithm, uh, Davis Putnam, uh, it's Martin Davis and Hillary Putnam uh, algorithm from the 1950s, early, very early computers. Um, that is the algorithm that is still actually widely used for satisfiability solving. That was an early example of an algorithm for that did a that would take a logic expression and be able to answer that. That was sort of an early example of theorem proving. There was there were then. I mean, the fundamental problem of theorem proving is the, the sort of, in principle, you have to try lots of possibilities to figure out, can you find a path that says you apply this axiom, then that axiom, you make this lemma, you apply that lemma, you make out, use the other lemmas to make another lemma, you keep building this whole thing, and eventually you find this path through this essentially network of, of, uh, of, of results to get to the theorem you want. Uh, if for people who've been following some of what I've been doing, the, a big project of um, uh, the beginning of this year was this thing that's this giant document about the physicalization of metamathematics. And a lot of that is about uh, this kind of process of you apply axioms, you apply axioms again, you keep applying them, you get this whole, uh, as what one can call it, entailment cone of all the different results that are entailed by a particular an initial result or initial set of axioms. And then theorem proving is about in this giant network of things that are entailed, if you're searching for a particular theorem, see if you can find the path through that giant graph that gets you to that theorem in an efficient way. That's kind of the, the goal of theorem proving. And what has happened is there's a certain amount of kind of black magic that goes on if, can you find the path? Oh, did you go the wrong way? Is that path going to go nowhere? Let's try and pull you back to a path that goes somewhere. Now, there is a, a, a kind of a, a clever idea. It's called slightly different things in different fields. It's the idea of completions. Um, and uh, it's the idea that uh, more or less when you have a, maybe I shouldn't get too deeply technical about this, but when you have sort of a branch, you can just sort of, uh, you, you know both things came from the same thing, and so you can consider them equal. And you can add that lemma, um, that critical pair lemma, as it's called, to your collection of things that you're using to do this proof. And it turns out that in some, uh, that if you can add enough critical pair lemmas, you can set it up so that your theorem prover will never get lost in this giant graph. You'll always be able to get back to the right place and get to the theorem you want. Um, but the question then, it becomes sort of a black magic of adding the right critical pair lemmas. And there are various strategies. There's one called unfailing completion, which is a particular strategy for dealing with these things. Zooming out a little bit, um, there are uh, automated theorem proving is a story of a whole bunch of different tricks that were invented for just sort of taking the theorems that people might realistically want to prove and being able to find ways to get those things proved more efficiently than you might. I, I should say again, that the at a general level, 
given a collection of axioms that are reasonably rich axioms, uh, like the axioms of arithmetic, for example, we know from Gödel's theorem from 1931 that in principle there are proofs that are arbitrarily long. That is this question of did your theorem prover get lost in the wilderness? That's it's very hard to say. Oh, you've been wandering around for too long. It's never going to work. You can't say that. Gödel's theorem tells you that in general you won't be able to say that. You can be wandering in the wilderness for a really, really long time, and eventually you reach the theorem that you were trying to get to. And I've certainly had many examples, even you know, just outrageously long times, that you're sort of wandering in that wilderness, and you eventually come back to essentially the theorem you want. So there's no upper bound on that. And the history of theorem proving, automated theorem proving, has really been a history of kind of uh, trying to do sort of black magic around uh, not getting lost in the wilderness. And, you know, there are a lot of different techniques. There's resolution theorem proving. There's, uh, oh, there are things like paramodulation. There's uh, just all these different names. It is a pretty obscure field. And the, the things that, uh, you know, uh, and I would say that that started in the 1950s, that started in the 1960s, there started to be more theorem provers, a person called Robinson, whose first name I now forget, Alan Robinson, I think, who was a, a big, a big sort of figure in that in that whole development. Um, a, a bunch of other people. The it's a it's a funny field because it's a field that's not really part of computer science as most people think of computer science. It's definitely not part of math as most people think of math. It's it's not really part of logic. It's sort of been a separate free floating field that's been pursued. Um, in Europe and some places in the US, uh, it's a very spotty kind of thing. And there have emerged a limited number of, of, of decently developed automated theorem proving systems. Um, I will say that back in year 2000, um, I was interested in actually using automated theorem proving to try and find the simplest axiom system for Boolean algebra. And so I was using all these different systems that existed uh, they were all babysitter-only use, basically. Um, if you were a sort of, uh, this had been kind of the story, I would say, in, well, it had been the story many years earlier in computer algebra um, before things that I tried to do. It was something where people didn't use computer algebra very much, this I'm talking 1970s and so on, because the people who had developed the systems had done it as a research project and so on. Maybe they wanted to use it themselves in some cases, and they could babysit it through to get to reasonable answers. But most of the people sort of in the consumer world, so to speak, like your average physicist or something like that, it's like it was just the creature was just too unruly and they just couldn't kind of, you know, they, they couldn't do the babysitting. I think I myself ended up being rather unusual in that because I knew enough about computers and maybe I just was, uh, was young and eager enough or something, I did use these systems even though they would split out things that required significant babysitting and so on. That was for computer algebra back in the late 1970s. And you know, the way that story ended was that um, the, uh, you know, I was interested in using those systems on a sort of larger scale and so on. And this was 1979. And I was encouraging people who'd worked on these things, you know, you can do a lot better than you've done so far. You know, build another version of the system, and they're like, "Oh no, we don't want to do that." And so that's what caused me to build SMP, 
Um, and uh, you know, one of his use cases was computer algebra, and then later on build Mathematica and so on. And uh, uh, so in a sense, I, what I tried to do was to take what had been a babysitting required kind of area and turn it into something that could be routinely used by people sort of without babysitting. So now zooming forward many years to 2000, automated theorem proving was in the same state. It was a field where it was usable with babysitting, but not really without. And so then I had this, this actual problem that I wanted to solve with automated theorem proving. So I managed to solve it using, uh, you know, I tried several different systems, eventually ended up using one written by a couple of Austrian graduate students called Waldmeister, the system was called Waldmeister, uh, master of trees. Trees are sort of the, the thing that you're, you're exploring in this giant forest of, of different paths and so on. But in any case, the, um, uh, so I was able to, to find this result about the simplest axiom system for Boolean algebra, which people had looked for uh, for a long time. In fact, there was one person, Karu Meredith, who spent decades trying to whittle down the different, the level, the, the size of that axiom and got nowhere near the actual minimal size, which I was able to find by computational search. But to my knowledge, even now, 20 years later, the, uh, that 20, 22 years later, that result of mine from 2000 is the only unexpected result ever found by automated theorem proving. All other results found by automated theorem proving are things people sort of already knew were true and automated theorem proving is helping to fill in some details. Now, I will say that the proof that I made for by automatically for this simplest action system for Boolean algebra, in 22 years, nobody has understood this proof, certainly including me. There's a person named Norm McGill, who was one of the authors, well, the primary author of a system called Metamath, which is a, a proof assistant system. And actually, towards the end of last, the fall of last year, he was making a big effort to actually understand the proof of this Boolean algebra axiom of mine and um, uh, uh, wrote me email that he was making progress. And then unfortunately he died, um, um, I think December of last year, sadly. Um, and so that, um, uh, so and I, and I'm not even sure I know the, the full extent of the progress he had made, but that's, uh, you know, he said he was making progress. That's the first person who's told me they're actually making progress on understanding this proof. So that kind of tells you something right there, that um, the, uh, uh, you get an automated proof and it's absolutely incomprehensible to humans. It was found, it was a path from here to there to here to there. And you look at these, these lemmas that the automated theorem prover produced, and it's like, I have no idea why this is true. I don't know how to talk about it. When you make a human proof, Part of the point is to make a narrative. Well, the main point is really to make a narrative that explains to another human why the thing you're claiming is true is actually true. And so it's really a story of creating that human narrative. And what the machine generates is something that doesn't have any reason to have a human narrative at all. Now, having said that, this, this thing about generating understandable proofs, the one place where I can say this is done in a pretty industrial scale is in Wolfram Alpha, in the step-by-step -step system of Wolfram Alpha, we are, uh, people are, you know, solving their math homeworks or whatever, and we are giving them a step-by-step -step version of that solution that is generated using all kinds of heuristics 
to try and make something that you know fits into those pesky humans and the ways that they understand things. It's certainly not the way the machine understands how to do it, but it's the way humans understand how to do it. So, in any case, that that um, uh, in in sort of automated theorem proving, the thing you get out is like yes, you can prove it's true. Yes, you can convince yourself it's true, but it is not useful as a narrative proof. Now, historically, okay, so a little bit more on automated theorem proving. So there's mathematical automated theorem proving. That's a thing. I would say that has never become very popular. We have tried, but I was literally just in a meeting right before this, working on some uh, live stream meeting, actually, um, working on some details of our theorem prover for, for Wolfram language. Um, I would say we are beginning to get to the point where we are successfully consumerizing automated theorem proving as a component of other kinds of things that people want to do. Um, but it's only, only just about getting there. Mostly, it's not something of great math interest. Now, there's another branch, which is the verification of things like protocols. And there have been a whole series of provers, the Z3 prover, I think. There, there are various kinds of provers that were created primarily for the purpose of, of validating computer code and, the, um, uh, and being able to check various properties of programs. And there has been a branch of automated theorem proving that I would say has been quite successful, which is tools to validate things like, oh, there is no way that this array can ever have uh, be written out of bounds or something. Things that you can start to do to check programs written particularly in low-level languages, um, where you can say, you know, because some, some higher-level languages like Wolfram language, you, you couldn't scribble on memory outside where you're supposed to scribble because you just don't have direct access. That's, that's many layers down in the kind of stack of, of levels of, of abstraction. Um, so unless there's a bug in our code, you can't just go and scribble on memory somewhere else. Whereas if you're using a language like C, you can just take your pointer and just say, add 75 to it, and you'll be pointing at a piece of memory that uh, is nowhere near where, it, where, where you've actually set things up. And you can just start writing to that piece of memory and your program might go nuts if you did that and so on. Um, but so one of the places where automated theorem proving has been quite successful is in making tools for doing sort of automated validation of some kinds of computer operations. It's also been somewhat successful in protocol verification. Um, although I do remember the um, uh, many years ago now and I, I think this story, I, 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 would, I would say take this story with a, with a grain of salt. It, it's, it might have some apocryphal elements to it. But um, the basic story was there was a, a, a fighter plane, British fighter plane, I think, uh, maybe French, but I think British, um, that uh, was very proudly said that all of its flight logic had been automatically verified. It was, uh, you know, uh, sort of, Confirmed correct. Then the plane for the first time flies across the equator and turns upside down. Um, so that's an example of, uh, you know, when people say, people talk about program verification. And what do you mean by program verification? What's the program supposed to do? Oh, they say, we've got a specification of what the program does. Well, what language is that specification written in? Oh, it's basically another language. So essentially what you're saying is, You've got a program and you're trying to verify it by having written another program and 
it doesn't really help you very much because that other program, which would be some program that has some specification of all kinds of results that must be true about the plane that didn't know about, I don't know what it was, sensing Coriolis forces or GPS coordinates or something. I think it was before GPS. So, so whatever it was. Um, but uh, so, you know, it doesn't help you to have the verifying program also written in another language, also with its own bugs. What you can do is to say, there is a property that I want to be true, like I can never um, access a piece of memory that uh, I can never uh, you know, read a piece of memory that I didn't write to first or something like that. You can have certain properties like that and you can verify those. And that's been a fairly successful branch of, of sort of some level of automated theorem proving. Now, there's, there's a, a yet another branch. I'm afraid this is a messy history. Uh, this isn't this isn't one of these things where it went one step, two steps, three steps. It's a seventy year history where it's been kind of a small area that's that's had little steps in one one way or another, um, but um, hasn't been a very coherent story. Um, I will say that there are uh, you know another piece of that story is that uh, term rewriting systems um, that is you have. Uh, you rewrite this to that, you rewrite this to that, and so on. And it's, it's very much like automated theorem proving. You're saying, can you find a series of rewritings that will get me from here to there? Or does this series of rewritings terminate? Those kinds of things. There's been kind of a whole world of people with competitions about term rewriting, where there are sort of systems that are sort of like automated theorem provers, and some of them are the same as automated theorem provers. Some of them are a little bit different that are trying to do those kinds of things. Term rewriting is something where, well, it sort of has applications to program verification. Maybe it has uh, applications to mathematical theorem proving, but it's sort of its own field and its own kind of strangely encapsulated kind of interesting field that doesn't really quite have a place anywhere. So the other game in town is proof assistance. Those really came on the scene, I would say, well, okay, they have a long history. There's a person called Nicholas de Bruyne, uh, who, um, uh, D-E space B-R-U-I-J-N, uh, Dutch chap, who worked most of, most of his life at uh, Phillips, I believe. Um, I believe that's right. Uh, maybe I'm slightly wrong about that. Maybe he was at a university in, in the Netherlands. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, de Bruyne... Uh, was did a whole variety of things, but one of the things he did was he had a project called Automath, and this was in the late 50s, early 60s, I believe. And the idea of Automath was to make what today will be called a proof assistant system. It was a little bit muddled between, it's sort of a, a way of representing mathematical proofs, it's sort of an automated theorem proving system, but more, I think, on the direction of representing mathematical proofs. I don't know how well it got implemented. I'm not sure it ever got implemented. Most of the things I've seen are sort of theoretical documents about it. And I don't believe I've ever, uh, is that true? Have I ever talked to anybody who actually was involved with that project? Yes, I'm sure I have, but um, I don't think I've managed to drill into that history very well. Um, there were other projects. There was a thing called Mizar, M-I-Z-A, like the star, M-I-Z-A-R. Um, that was a project to make a, um, uh, it went along with a journal of formalized mathematics. And it was um, 
a uh, uh, it was an attempt to curate essentially to, to have a language for mathematical theorems, to collect a lot of mathematical theorems, to be able to publish those mathematical theorems in a formalized way. This is something from the 1960s, I think, primarily. There's even other pieces to this. This is a complicated history. And I, and I don't think, I, I, you know, I don't know it perfectly. Actually, I know, I probably know most of the pieces of it. I've never really put this history properly together. Okay, there's another piece. Um, which I believe was also connected to Brouwer, uh, person interested in the foundations of mathematics in the Netherlands. Um, and it was a person called Hans Freudenthal, uh, who I think was a student of Brouwer's, who was a person who ended up trying to make sort of a formalized representation of the mathematical process. Uh, he invented a thing called Lincoz that he called the... Um, uh, the language of cosmic intercourse. It was intended to be a language for communicating with extraterrestrials using set theory. And it's kind of a bizarre exercise of, of it's a very weird thing. But it, um, that was all somehow connected to the De Bruyne Automath project. But these were, these were sort of theoretical pushes to say, can we make a formalized notation for things like mathematical proofs? By the way, there's sort of a history to that in the sense that um, Whitehead and Russell in their Principia Mathematica from 1910, they were trying to sort of formalize mathematics as based on logic, to derive mathematics from logic. That was an idea that originally had come from Gottlob Frege in the 1870s, 1880s. Um, that uh, uh, went through uh, Giuseppe Piano around 1890s, 1900. Uh, Piano had this thing called interlingua, which was a, a kind of math representation language. Um, that uh, uh, and he also had his piano axioms and so on. All of these things were mostly ways of stating mathematics, but they also had ways of essentially presenting proofs using some kind of formalized language. I think that kind of flowed into eventually things like automath. Now, the actual automated theorem proving systems, um, I was uh, were, uh, I think they were not as related to that as one might think. They more came out of, so the, the, the Davis-Putnam thing was uh, something that was developed on the, oh gosh, that was developed, I think, uh, some work was done on the John von Neumann's computer at the Institute for Advanced Study, um, a very early computer. Uh, some work I think was done on the University of Illinois' computer, what was it, the ILIAC, um, and so very early computers, this idea of being able to do sort of logic theorem proving was a very early idea in, in electronic computers. Um, I think people had associated, uh, perhaps the reason for that was that um, the whole sort of computers were seen as being like sort of glorified switching networks and following, uh, for example, Claude Shannon's early work on sort of the relationship between Boolean algebra and switching networks, people were sort of like, well, these things, it's kind of Boolean algebra is an obvious target for these things we're making that are kind of like Boolean algebra machines. Perhaps that was the, the thinking, but, but this idea of doing sort of logical uh, logic with machines was a very early idea in, in, in computer history. I mean, there had even been, well, okay, when computers were mechanical, 
when there was things like Babbage's difference engine in the in the 1830s and so on, um, there was um, uh, a chap called Stanley Jevons, who I think was primarily an economist, um, but he had a logic machine that was, again, sort of a mechanical device that was a little bit in the tradition of the difference engine, again, attempting to resolve kind of logic expressions in the same kind of way that the difference engine was trying to resolve, trying to compute polynomials. So this is a messy history. Wow, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry it's so messy. Um, I would like to be able to just tell you, you know, beginning, middle, end to this story, but I think it has many, many tentacles. Uh, this idea of proof assistance, where you're kind of writing out a proof in a formalized way, and then a computer is checking your proof. Um, I think Automath had that idea. Um, I think there were uh, a series of, of different kinds of small-scale systems. There was, a, there was another piece of this story, which is a thing called the QED Manifesto, which was an attempt to sort of define a, an effort to do formalized mathematics that must have been in the 1980s, 90s maybe. It was not a success. Um, I think it partly was related to this Mizar system and so on. Anyway, long story. So, so then this idea of proof assistance, uh, one of the places that became somewhat popular is mathematicians, including some well-known mathematicians who were frustrated because they had developed very long proofs and nobody believed them. So this happened to um, Tom Hales, a person who uh, worked on, actually used Mathematica a whole bunch to, um, to prove the Kepler conjecture. The, the Kepler conjecture says that if you, if, you stacks, if you pack spheres together, the closest packing you can get is this one that people use in grocery stores to pack spherical fruit. Um, just like it, it was known from, uh, oh, let's see, back in the 1600s or 1700s, it was known that if you have just disks and you try and pack them as densely as possible, the hexagonal packing of disks is the densest possible packing. But the three-dimensional analog of that was not known, and it had been sort of an open problem for a long time. And Tom Hales used uh, a bunch of Mathematica analysis and a bunch of sort of arbitrary precision arithmetic and being able to find bounds on inequalities and so on and produced this big proof of uh, the... Of, of the Kepler conjecture. And people was like, oh, this is a 300 page paper. Nobody can read it. How do we know it's right? Why aren't there errors in it? And he got very frustrated and he decided to mount an effort to really make an automated, uh, make a, a proof assistant proof of that conjecture where you can really validate every step precisely. I think it took him about a decade. And sadly, I'm not sure anybody cared. Um, it's... Uh, you know, it's a magnificent thing to do and, and you're, you can be, you know, it helps you to make sure of it better for yourself. Now, another person uh, named Vavodsky um, was, was somebody, a sort of high-end pure mathematician who uh, got interested in proof assistant systems and, um, uh, uh, the, and, uh, and really, um, I think he had so some error he'd found or other people had found in some, some piece of work he'd done. He sort of got convinced if it can be done with a proof assistant, then I can be sure it's right. Uh, I, I don't know the precise relationship. I mean, I certainly talked to Vavodsky, and I'm trying to remember whether I know from that history. Uh, uh, he was very much involved in the creation of homotopy type theory, 
which is kind of a, a way of redoing the foundations of the way you think about mathematics to be a little bit more like the sort of formalized way it would work in a proof assistant. And I'm not sure which came first, homotopy type theory or Vavodsky's interest in proof assistant systems. I think it was probably proof assistants, but I'm not certain. But there have been these various efforts, and there are a number of people now who are sort of big promoters of, of um, the idea of proof assistant systems. I mean, we've done a bunch of work with Lean, uh, which is a proof assistant system. There's there's Coq. There's, um, uh, well, there's, there's Metamath, which we've done a lot with. Um, uh, that's not Metamath is a, is a little bit of a uh, of a slightly different community. Each one of these each one of these proof assistant systems has a certain kind of community associated with it, um, and they're somewhat disjoint. I mean, Lean is came out of Microsoft and came out of uh, essentially validation for things like programs, um, but then has been sort of adopted by mathematicians. But it came out of the world of, um, uh, of sort of automated program verification. Um, and uh, particularly for very practical purposes like compiler uh, enhancement and so on, uh, slightly, slightly different from the traditions that some of these other systems have come out of. I mean, there are there are other ones. Um, uh, oh my gosh, what's the one from the uh, the Boyer Moore theorem prover? THM QTHM. Um, I'm I'm forgetting all of these names, um, but they. Many of these systems have slightly different, slightly different domains they operate on, um, and so on. And slightly, uh, at this point, one of the things that's happened is there are quite large libraries of around forty thousand theorems that have been collected in formalized form, and that exists at between between thirty thousand and hundred thousand theorems. These different systems, the biggest ones I think are Lean, Coq, Metamath has a pretty big one, um, and so on. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm forgetting, I, I feel terrible here because I'm forgetting the names of some of these systems. And we had a lovely conference that we, we organized a few years ago, which collected pretty much all of the, the creators of, um, of these major systems. And um, uh, I'm, I'm uh, like super embarrassed that I can't remember all of their names immediately. But um, uh, in any case, the, um, uh, oh yes, there's whole light, that's another one, H-O-L. But each of these systems has a slightly different way of representing its mathematical axiom set up and, and, and different sort of interface for operating and different, slightly different characteristics. Um, but in any case, the, the, the kind of the vision that some people have is the mathematician of the future will just be kind of putting things into a proof assistant system. And at the end, it will say, success, you successfully managed to prove the theorem you thought you were proving. Um, I think that's a rather desiccated view of mathematics, that particularly in view of the things that I've studied recently about the physicalization of mathematics seems like a wrong idealization of what mathematics is about. Um, and I think the, uh, uh, it, it's something where, you know, that very proceduralized, you know, just fit all the pieces together, and then you will know you have a correct theorem uh, doesn't. I, you know, that has its place, but in terms of um, sort of the conceptual discovery in mathematics, I'm not sure how useful that is. Um, I think vastly more useful is the actual ability to compute things in mathematics. Let me, let me mention another uh, story. I'm, I'm sorry, this is a bit, bit, a bit ragged here. But, um, uh, you know, when people like Whitehead and Russell 
tried to formalize mathematics, Hilbert also. They tried to make a sort of formalized representation of mathematics. The question was, what did they think mathematics was? They thought mathematics was all about proving things from axioms. A little bit like how Euclid had kind of set it up, but how Hilbert had really emphasized mathematics, the workflow of mathematics. Well, so when people started thinking about how are we gonna use computers to do mathematics, some of this early activity around theorem proving was probably, let's take that workflow model of mathematics that had existed in Whitehead and Russell and so on, and let's put that on computers. And that workflow was doing proofs. Well, it turns out the thing that was sort of the meta discovery in a sense I made was that turns out there's a lot more interest and a lot more practicality to doing computations in mathematics than doing proofs in mathematics. So in building Mathematica and Wolfram language and so on, it's all about just compute things in mathematics. Now, in a sense, some of the things we're computing are proofs. Like for example, we say, you know, use the reduce function in, in Wolfram language. Does this set of equations have a solution? Answer, no. Okay, that could be thought of as the result of a proof that the equations have no solution. But it's not packaged as a proof activity. It's packaged as a answer the question, do these equations have a solution? So the sort of meta discovery of, I suppose, mine in the 1980s was the formalization of mathematics to be useful is vastly more about just computing things than it is about formalizing proofs. That was an incorrect formalization of what mathematics is about. And I actually think that even more strongly now that I've worked on this physicalization of metamathematics. But now the next question is, is the correct formalization of what mathematicians do, the sort of proof assistant formalization? And I don't think it is. I think those, that has a place it probably has a place, if anything, more so on the computer science side than it does on the mathematics side. I mean, for example, if you look at the compiler for Wolfram Language that we've been building for many years, but it's making wonderful progress now, um, it has to prove a lot of theorems. It has to say, um, does this loop that is defined by this nest list and fold list and so on, could the result of this ever be anything other than a list? Could it ever be or you know, could it ever be anything other than a two-dimensional list, let's say? Oh, whoops, there's an exception to that theorem, it could be a null list. So we effectively have to do theorem proving within the compiler to be able to know kind of uh, what, what the structure of the results will be. So that's a very practical application. And I happen to believe that we will end up with some proof assistant-like stuff where humans are essentially hinting what might be true about this, the data that they have. See, this is a, a sort of a competition because we've got on the one hand, uh, just compute the answer. On the other hand, we've got the automatically prove a theorem. And on the other hand, we've got, it's too hard to automatically prove the theorem. The human has to guide it and specify what they think the theorem is and the computer will check it. Okay, thrown into this is then machine learning. And then there's a question, well, could you get sort of machine learning to intermediate between proof assistance and automated theorem proving? That is, for example, have a proof assistant, but it isn't a human who's specifying what the proof is supposed to be. It's some machine learning system. Right now, that doesn't look super promising, I would say. There are some cool examples, but mostly what that's doing is, I mentioned that on automated theorem proving, the big thing is not getting lost in the wilderness. And the question is, can you use uh, machine learning 
to guess whether it's the left path or the right path that you should take. And it seems to be slightly successful at doing that. I wouldn't say it's dramatic yet, but it's at least slightly successful at doing that, maybe. Um, uh, it's, um, but you know, the, the real heavy lifting of automated theorem proving doesn't seem to be helped by that. It's not like you can expect the neural nets to just learn, oh, the, this 100-step proof, you know, I'm just going to create this 100-step proof. It's just not going to happen that way. Maybe you're at a, at a branch point and you can say, okay, is it worth, you know, I've got, I'm going to run one computation. Is it worth trying that one rather than that one? By the way, that's very similar to what we do a lot in meta-algorithms and more from language, where we might have 100 different ways to do a computation, and we're using essentially machine learning to decide which way to try to do it. You know, we're solving a differential equation, and we can tell whether we're getting the right answer, um, or, or even simplifying an expression. We're starting to use this for that. You simplify an expression, you know the transformations you're doing will always get you correct answers. The question is, how small can you get the simplified expression? And you can use machine learning to guess kind of which branch you should take in trying to simplify the expression. Oh, is it a good idea to do trigonometric things or is it a good idea to try and do this other thing? You can tell whether you got it right, but it's something where it's not obvious. Uh, there's no sort of standard algorithm that says, oh, you should try you know, expanding out the trigonometric functions here, or, oh, you should try sort of uh, compressing the square roots here. So uh, anyway, that that's some, um, now, I mean, Dennis has asked here, would, would there be an era where computers prove theorems and mathematicians interpret them? I don't think like that. What there is, is experimental mathematics. What there is, is just go out into the mathematical universe effectively and go find what's true and then figure out why it's true. That's a big thing to do. That's something that mathematicians, many mathematicians have secretly done those kinds of things. You know, Gauss, Riemann, they secretly did that, looking at the distribution of primes. But what they published and what they talked about was, oh, we've proved this theorem about the distribution of time primes. Secretly, they'd done a numerical experiment effectively to find out what was likely to be true. Kind of probably the master of those things was Ramanujan, in the 1910s, um, doing, uh, coming up with these amazing sort of number theoretical statements uh, like e to the pi square root of 100 137, no, oh, 192. Am I remembering? I forget what the square root is. e to the pi square root of something, some three digit number is extremely close to an integer. That's something Ramanujan discovered. And uh, you might have said, well, you know, so that was discovered in, in that case by a human calculator, but in modern times that will be discovered by a computer. And then the big question is, so what? And Ramanujan turned that into a huge bunch of mathematics, including for a long time, the best algorithm for computing pi accurately and so on. But this is this whole question about, you find what's true out there in the kind of mathematical universe. And then you say, well, why is that true? Can I build a, a kind of narrative structure around that? One of the things that we realized recently is that, well, a thing I've done a lot is kind of going out into the computational universe of possible programs and just finding what can happen out there. And that's kind of like exploring alien intelligence in a sense. It's something where out there in the computational universe, there are rules that you can easily generate or write down that are just completely unconnected to anything we humans have thought about. So 
I view it as being when I talk about the Ruliad and Rulial space and so on, in a sense, uh, we can do some exploration of uh, ordinary physical space. We can also do exploration of Ruliel space. Um, and in a sense, what we're doing when we kind of just do that random computer experiment, we're jumping out somewhere in Ruliel space and trying to find out what's going on there. And there's no reason to think that there's a narrative story that connects that to things we already knew. So in a sense, when you say, will mathematicians build, will mathematicians just be presented with results and then told to interpret them? The problem with that is the interpretation may not be a narrative that mathematicians are even close to. Mathematicians have been sort of building out this narrative that's now about three or four million theorems in the, in the literature of human mathematics. That's a kind of a whole narrative of how things work. But if you just jump out there into sort of mathematical, experimental mathematical space, you can jump somewhere that's far away from any narrative that exists. And so this idea that you can then sort of have mathematicians go interpret those things, that's a really tough thing to do because it's like what I was mentioning with cellular automata and so on. You're jumping into this part of, sort of the computational universe where math is far away. It doesn't really help you very much. Um, and so you end up having to build sort of in, in the words of things I've done, a new kind of science to think about how to deal with things where you've just jumped off into a random place in the computational universe and you see phenomena like computational irreducibility and so on. Anyway, so a, a long and rather shaggy answer to that, that question. Um, so I should probably wrap up soon, but... Um, uh, okay, there's a question from Stove here. Okay, uh, interesting question would be, can you flip around automated theorem proving algorithms to figure out why black box neural nets do what they do? Uh, no, basically. I, I don't think so. Because both neural nets and automated theorem proving are deeply non-human. And if you want to know why a neural net does what it does, well, uh, you know, for example, in, in version 13.1 of Orphan Language, which is about to come out, uh, we have some, some more tools to find out what the impact of particular features is for a neural net. So at least you can answer the question, you know, oh, my credit was denied somewhere. You know, what was the most important feature that caused that to happen? Um, that you can get some information about by basically looking at the kind of the, 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 the differentiable structure of the neural net and saying, well, if we change this, you know, what's the thing that mattered most in terms of changing it? But that's, a, that's sort of a, 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 a very simple kind of human narrative type explanation of the thing that mattered was this. If you ask the bigger picture of how do you explain what the neural net is doing, that's something for which we, it's just a very non-human thing. It's kind of an alien intelligence. And what we could say is, well, the neural net noticed that uh, in this kind of image, you could see, oh, yeah, there are these stripes that go this way and that way. And so that's the way that it did this distinction between this type of image and that type of image. Now, in the world of the future, we might learn that there's a word we should add to our language, which is, you know, vertical blobs and um, horizontal stripes, let's say, and that that word should be it's a, it's a, 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 I don't know, it's a, um, a horror striper or something, or who knows what it is, a, a, a horror, a, a blobo stripe. Um, 
and uh, uh, you know that that oh yes, that looks very blobo stripey, and eventually we get that word in our language and we start to associate all those things with it, and then when we look at the neural net, we can say well it's just testing for the blobo stripery of this image, um, and and then then that gives us a piece of human understandability there, but without that kind of socialization of these concepts, we don't get to have kind of a human language described narrative for what's going on. So I, I don't think there's, I think those are, those are two different technologies or maybe they're improving on neural nets. They both have this kind of alien intelligence character to them. They're actually two of the, the, the sort of a little bit, the, the bigger, I mean, I suppose the other, the other type of alien intelligence is the kind of thing that's deeply built into Wolfram language all over the place, which is just algorithms for doing things where, gosh, how could you figure out this or that thing? Well, it turns out there's this algorithm for doing that. Uh, so, um, let's see. Parker is commenting on will will general AGI, artificial general intelligence, be the future of automation, or will it be a symbolic language like Wolfram language? Oh, that's such a long story. I, I mean, the um, uh, maybe I shouldn't do that one now. That, that's a very interesting question. Um, the uh, I would not have spent forty years working on the computational language that I've spent 40 years working on if I believed that it was the wrong approach. Um, I think there is this whole question of, do you, if you want to make a plane, do you imitate the feathers of a bird or do you try to make this thing out of aluminum that uh, you know goes through the air rapidly, so to speak? That's, that's part of the dichotomy in you know, how do you make a thing that does useful AI-ish stuff? Do you imitate the details of, of human intelligence or do you build something that achieves the objectives but by different methods, so to speak? And I think the key thing is, so you have this thing, it's sitting on your desk, it's a general intelligence, whatever. What do you want it to do? You could like, you could talk to it in, in uh, in sort of ordinary language, and yeah, it, it might be able to do some things based on that. But in the end, the way you're truly gonna get leverage from sort of the, the computational side of things is by having a more streamlined way to represent computational thoughts. And that's kind of the whole idea of our computational language is to be able to represent computational thoughts in a, in a kind of structured notation. You know, the big analogy that I like to give us to mathematical notation uh, before one had mathematical notation, it was hard to express mathematical thoughts. They had to be expressed with words and, and so on. And then one had this sort of streamlined notation. And it's sort of the same thing. You, you can either talk to your AI and try and say, well, I want you to do this. And, oh, the, well, there's this piece and that piece and that piece. Or you can do something which is a real jump above that and say, here's this thing written in computational language. Now, the big point is that computational language is intended to be a bridge to human thinking. It's a bridge between the computational universe and human thinking. And you could say, well, 
why don't you just, I mean, the, the point is there's great power in the computational universe, most of which we humans do not care about. Most of those, you know, complicated programs that run in this or that way, maybe, you know, a thousand years from now, sort of the, the whatever the meta descendants of us are, will care about that weird kind of computation that we never cared about, because it will turn out that's really important for the kind of social pecking order of people who are making derived, you know, infinitely derived pieces of intellectual property that are, you know, that represent a combination of, you know, art and food or something, and things that we just have no, no conception of. Um, and, uh, you know, then those things that we have thought, oh, that's just a random piece of computation that we don't really care what it does, will become very central to, um, uh, to, to the way that people think about things. And, you know, we can see that over the course of history, that plenty of things that we now uh, are, you know, focused on, you know, uh, the, you know, ratings, rankings for this or that thing, these things were things that just didn't really, you know, you might have explained that to somebody a thousand years ago, and they would have kind of looked at you blankly, why do you care? What, how does that connect into anything you're doing? So, I mean, I think that the, um, uh, this, the thing that we get to do in this time in history is actually start to mine the computational universe, really make use of the power of, of computation. And sort of my personal goal uh, in, in over the course of the last four decades or so has been to provide um, the, um, uh, the, um, uh, to, to um, uh, provide that sort of way of, of, of letting us humans make use of um, the, the power of the computational universe. I mean, it's kind of like you could say, well, uh, you know, back before people understood how to mine metals out of the ground, and it was just, you know, that looks like a piece of rock. Oh, well, when you heat it up and you do this and that, you can extract iron from it. Um, that's a, um, we're at the stage where we've got the rocks, so to speak, in the computational universe, and we have to build the mining equipment. And, you know, I've spent a large part of my life trying to build some of that mining equipment. It's another sort of analogy to that is, you know, how do people express themselves? Well, you know, we as a species, learnt a couple of hundred thousand years ago, whenever it was, how to, you know, speak in languages, um, uh, you know, less time ago than that, maybe 4,000 years ago or something, we started to learn how to write these things. And then that became a widespread capability, you know, maybe 500 years ago now. And I think that this process of we can express ourselves in language, in written language, and we will be able to express ourselves in computational language. And that's something that will gradually come, just like at least some part of the population is able to express itself somewhat in mathematical language. That's a phenomenon from the last 400 years or so. Um, let's see, just one more thing perhaps here. Uh, um, Richard comments, I think the computational mathematics system of the future will be generating new languages, new notations, new proofs, new theorems, and new conjectures. Uh, the problem is to have a system that doesn't have to also generate new humans. Because, you know, the, the weak link here is humans learning stuff. 
I mean, I could say that about the things I've done in my life. You know, I've invented lots of stuff. Uh, you know, I think it's really cool and some set of people understand it, but there's an awful lot of humans who would be able to do, you know, have an awful lot of superpowers if they understood it, but they don't. And there's kind of this weak link of how do you get the humans to the point where they understand these new XYZ things. And that's something that happens sort of societally as some slow socialized process. Um, and it's something where typically small numbers of humans go out and, you know, they're the, they're the, the, uh, the pioneers who go and understand things before everybody else. I mean, I've, I've taken to sometimes referring to some of the technology we've built as artifacts from the future. You know, it's the sort of small band of pioneers that can go and, and grab these things from the distant future, even when sort of the weak link is uh, kind of having the mass of people really understand that stuff. Now, you know, as a designer of languages, my my it's a little different than than can happen with nature and so on because it's kind of my job to make it as easy as possible make that on-ramp as as shallow as possible and you know we've done a lot particularly in recent times with the code assistance technology and so on to try and achieve that to try and make it kind of uh, you know as easy as possible but there are concepts and those concepts represent a different way of thinking about things and it's challenging for people to have different ways of thinking about things. I would say that, that merely enumerating a whole boatload of new theorems is not particularly useful. I mean, it's easy to do that. And people will say, why do we care? And then you have to say, well, you care because, well, there's this narrative. Now, okay, so one thing Richard might be referring to is that you know, one could imagine a system that really had sussed out the humans. And it said, okay, humans, you know, much like our step-by-step -step system and Wolf Malfa does, okay, humans, I know what to feed you. The next thing you should be thinking about is X. You know, I, the computer, the sort of computational language, I can jump way out in real space. I can go find these things that are amazing kinds of things that I could go and mine. But you humans, you don't care about that yet. It'll be 500 more years before you guys care about that. So I suppose I can imagine maybe the, the, the thing to think about is, you know, can you build a system which says for us humans in the next 10 years, what, you know, what might you care about in the next 10 years? Not what's true out there altogether, because that's way too far away. That's alien intelligence. That's, that's um, you know, you're not going to understand that yet. Um, and so that's, that's sort of a question. Now, I have to say, I've been interested in making systems that do things a little bit like this. So, for example, one of my favorite kinds of potential applications is code debugging, and you run a piece of code, it gets an answer that you think is wrong. You say to the system, why is it wrong? You know, you say, I expected seven, you gave me 18. Why? Why did that happen? And so then the question is, is it possible to give an explanation for why you got 18 rather than seven that a human can understand? Just saying, well, you run the code and it gives 18, that doesn't tell you anything. That's that's not useful. That's like the proof assistance system just saying, "Blump, there's a there's a there's a big um, uh, you know here's the big proof that you could in principle run to validate things." But in any case, the the you know the question is, could the machine build a narrative that humans can understand? Uh, interesting question. Um, I think uh, 
you know, maybe the answer is yes. I, I think that's not something that we have seen. I mean, I suppose that that's a little bit analogous. Okay, let's talk about user experience design. The vast majority of user experience design is done by humans. It's very little of it is done automatically. This is, in a sense, a perhaps more sophisticated version of user experience design. I mean, you might think, and I did think 20 years ago, I thought web page layout would be largely automated. That is, if somebody says, you'd say, I have a web page. I've got a bunch of things I want to put on this page. I want to emphasize this. I want to de-emphasize this. I want people's flow to be this and that and the other. You have some kind of little language that describes your objectives to the web page, and then the thing gets laid out automatically. Um, I mean, I suppose at a very low level, that's what's happening in CSS and responsive design, but very, very low level there. It's not kind of the, the sort of high level cognitive description. But I think one of the problems with that is that even the description language of what's important to lay out where on the page is not an easy thing to specify. And by the time you've specified that, you might as well have just laid out the page. Um, let's see. So... It's a very interesting question, really, whether, whether, okay, so this question of whether an AI can learn enough about us humans to help us think in a, in a kind of a, this kind of narrative thinking path, for sure, AIs, in quotes, dramatically help us think. I mean, I use Wolfram language for hours every day, helping me think, and but you would say, but that's not a, you know, that's not an AGI type thing. That's just, you know, a computer. And you're right. But it certainly is a is a great thinking prosthesis, so to speak. Of, uh, you know, it lets me it lets me figure out a lot more things than I could possibly ever figure out myself. But it figures them out in this very non-human way in many in many respects. I can then understand that in a human way. But what it's doing is to figure things out in a very very non-human way. And I think, um, uh, let's see, Alistair comments, AI is an effort to create electronic learning, not human thinking. You know, one of the things I find interesting in terms of the sort of historical arc, I remember when I was a kid, so we're now talking 55 years ago or something, like this is probably from that time. Um, you know, I remember I had a book about the future or something. And one of the kind of sort of the, 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 the great pages of the book was the teaching machines of the future. And the idea was, uh, this will be the way people learn things, is they'll just be fed stuff by a teaching machine. Well, it didn't happen that way. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, even adaptive learning, the idea of, of um, uh, for example, having, uh, you know, you, you make the test slightly more difficult, you do this, that, and the other, Simple versions of that have been done and work fine and are, are readily in production. Attempts to make that super fancy have not been very successful. There are hacks relevant to humans, like spaced repetition and so on, where you say, you know, do this, do it again with a different uh, frequency and so on. And, and that, that is a hack that helps us, uh, that people have found out helps with human memorization. But this idea that there will be sort of the teaching machine that is sort of perfectly adapted, that understands us humans well enough to know exactly what to say next. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I, I kind of wonder, one of the things that's sort of a, often a joke of people who build computer systems is, you tell the humans, the computer system is learning from you humans. 
you know, just do things in this and that way, the computer system will learn, okay? Turns out that's not what really happens. The human learns. The human learns this works, this doesn't work, and the human modifies their behavior. And actually, the computer system doesn't have to learn anything. Just telling the human the computer system is going to learn might be enough to get the human to learn, and so you never have to have the computer system learn. I think it's the same sort of question with AGI and computational language and so on, is at some point, the humans just learn to write computational language, and then this whole, oh, you need this sort of AGI, human-like feathered intelligence in the middle becomes not a thing. I mean, the, the thing I really noticed long ago, people were very focused on the Turing test. You know, this thing from 1950 of Alan Turing's of, can you talk to a machine and not know you're talking to a machine rather than human? And people were very focused on, you know, could we make that work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, would that be the way that we automate things? But they missed user interfaces because that turned out to be the way, I mean, Alan Turing in 1950 didn't know about graphical user interfaces and why should he have done, didn't foresee that. But the fact is that the vast majority of the interaction that we do with computers and, and, and with automated systems involves some kind of visual uh, component. And that's something that just wasn't imagined in this kind of channel that was thought about where it's just, you just talk to it, so to speak. So I, I think that's a case, again, where, where the thing that is easy for the computer becomes the thing that humans find uh, convenient too, and it wasn't the thing that was just what was appropriate in the human-to-human -human setting. Let's see. Uh, right, Alistair is commenting on self-learning programs will not develop human-like emotions. It has no physiological needs. There's no need to fear it can be replicated, backed up, turned off and on. I wonder about that. You know, I was, I was trying to write something, I hope I'll get to it in the next little while, about what it's like to be a computer. Because I was trying to understand, people say, oh, consciousness, you'll never be able to replicate that in some kind of computer type environment, you know, world. But what really does it feel like to even be a computer of the current kind we have? That, you know, you boot it up, it runs for days, weeks, months, whatever, it, it crashes again, it has certain memories during that, that session, that operating system session. Uh, you know, how does it feel to be that computer? If we try to imagine that, does the computer say, you know, does the computer essentially have the analog of fear? You know, don't plug that thing into my, you know, USB port. Something could go horribly wrong. Or don't, you know, and what would be kind of the correlate of that? And, uh, you know, it, it may have these kind of responses, which, which as much as we can, uh, you know, attribute fear to a dog or something like this, we might be able to attribute it to a computer. I think that's, that remains something that's a little hard to, to disentangle, even for the technology we have today. Um, all right, I should wrap up here. I've got to go to some other things, but um, thanks for lots of interesting questions and comments and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you all again another day. Thanks very much. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.